welcome, welcome, welcome everybody to the Moose Room. We are just kicking this episode off with a couple housekeeping items. We have Trent Olson today here from ABS Global. So please check out absglobal.com and how they can help you. Trent will fill us in on all those things as well. We love to see you visiting extension.umn.edu for more information, things to reference. You can also check us out on Facebook at at umndairy and at umnbeef. Those are our Facebook pages for the dairy and the beef teams. And we love to see traffic on there, so throw those a like if you get a chance. Enjoy the episode today, everybody. Thank you. Welcome to the Moose Room, everybody. Uh, we are here this week with a guest. Despite warnings from Emily, he has agreed to be on today. Trent Olson is with us from ABS Global. And Trent grew up on a dairy farm down in Lewiston. Uh, his family milks both registered Holsteins and Jerseys. Family's still milking cows down by Lewiston. We're excited to have Trent on today because he really is a fellow educator. He specializes in developing genetic training programs and tools for farmers to help them make economic decisions, and especially when it comes to genetics. So today we're talking about dairy beef cross uh, animals and, and using beef on a dairy. I'm sure we'll have plenty of questions for Trent. You heard all of our opinions in a previous episode, so if you haven't listened to that, come back, go back and listen to that, kind of set you up for what we're going to talk about today. Yeah, and then you can, you know, compare and contrast and Figure exactly. out who who made more sense. Exactly. So, that would be me. <laughs> it's always Brad. Brad, as we decided, I think a couple episodes ago, we're just really parroting Brad's opinions in this podcast. That's what it's for, um, because he has tenure, and and that's what we're supposed to do. So <laughs> if we we're we're trying to get a tally going, and we're going to start keeping track um, of what everyone's favorite dairy breed is. Right now, the tally sits at, with jerseys leading everything. Brad and I like jerseys, so we've got jerseys at two. We've got Holsteins at zero right now. We have Dutch Belteds at one with uh, yeah! Miss Emily. And then we have a vote for Normandy. So, Trent, what is your favorite dairy breed? Um, I'm going to have to say Holstein, but I'm going to lean on the Jersey side. So um, as far as my favorite type of Holstein, I guess it's a Holstein that acts and thinks it's a Jersey. So you like well, the that would look be a, of a Wouldn't Holstein? that be a crossbred? That would be a crossbred. So you're in favor of crossbreeding. Yes. Hey, I, uh, <laughs> profitability takes no shape or color in my mind. Whatever works for operations are good to me. Everything's green at the end of the day. Hey, that's, uh, that's I agree. a really good answer. That's a good answer. But we'll we'll chalk you up for Holstein, give them their first vote. Just fine. We were hoping you were going to say Jersey, but you, you were close. I thought for sure he would say Dutch Belt. I... Never. <laughs> <laughs> Got you there. Got you there. All right, let's yeah. let's get into this. Let's get into this. Before we get going too far, Trent is with ABS Global, and I just want to give him a, a second to tell us a little bit about ABS Global, what they can do for you if you have some genetic questions, and then just how you can get a hold of Trent or his team or anybody at ABS Global if you need some help with something on your farm. Yes, uh, thanks. So um, I work within our genetic services department, and really what that would be is working with in coordination with our local sales team, but really understanding um, the individual goals and parameters that different farms work in and help building a cohesive uh, genetic strategy to try and build the 
a profitable herd for the future. So um, quite a bit of my and my team's time is, um, like I said, building that genetic strategy. Um, so a lot of that comes around to, you know, understanding milk pricing for that individual region. So how do we build um, and create a herd to make the, the style of milk that we get paid on and, and how it's incentivized um, for that local milk processor? Um, but also understand, you know, individual environmental issues and understand, you know, why cows leave the dairy and really how can we improve the overall genetic levels and trying to think forward, you know, in future years, um, making sure we're creating, at least from a genetic perspective, the right type of cow and right type of milk production and um, really hitting those animal targets. So over the last two or three years, um, it's been pretty, pretty incredible the amount of emphasis that um, our team has been spending um, working on the animal inventory side of things. And there's quite a history behind that, and we can get into that, of, of kind of why beef semen has become so popular. But trying to decide um, how many heifers we truly need to be rearing and making sure that we're making the best possible heifers. Because in a lot of cases, um, when I sit down and do P&L and trying to understand profitability and ways to improve farm uh, economics, too many heifers and having too high of a call rate is probably one of the um, largest opportunities for improvement, um, short term as well as long term when it comes to cash flow and feed sourcing today. All good. I, I mean, we, we talked a little bit about, you know, heifers and, and how using beef on a dairy is not anything new. You know, it's been around for a long time. We've just kind of come back around to it uh, as we see our heifer having too many heifers in, in the system. Well, what's, so, what's the problem with too many heifers? Why, why would we think that we have too many? Is it feed cost? Is that the main, is profitability the main driver um, of that? I would Just say to play devil's advocate. Oh, you're good at that, Brad, aren't you? Yeah. Well, so you I know, would say most, that's the big, that's, you know, it's like most dairymen, we got to keep every, every animal that's born. That's what, you know, we've all probably been raised like that. You got to keep everything. Heifer hoarders is a mindset that we've passed down from generations. Um, and quite a few colleagues that I work with, you know, from me, for example, um, they've been using beef semen as a strategy for since the early 80s. And, you know, they're lower inputs. Um, it's incredibly expensive to raise heifers for land base over there. Um, you know, so they're seeing a 20, 25% herd turnover over there. And knowing that heifer, uh, you know, are expensive to rear and the fact that beef is such a premium. Um, they've been using, you know, beef into the dairy herd strategically for decades. Mm. And the U.S. has been relatively recent. And I would say a lot of it comes back to uh, just overall management. I mean, from when I was in college and I mean, Brad, you were even there back then. A 15 preg rate was a pretty big deal. Yeah. Now we have herds doing over double that. Some are, are approaching three times that. Um, we've seen such better advances than heifer rearing and nutrition. And we just lose so many less heifers throughout that pipeline. Um, and then when you add in the fact that, you know, people want to have a easy and seamless calving event for these young heifers, um, we do know that heifers having heifers compared to bull calves uh, reduces calving difficulty as mm -hmm. well as stillbirth. And, and certainly sex semen has become a uh, component within that. But it's pretty easy to just see those heifer inventories continually grow year on year. And when we don't take an approach and really think about a call rate and working backwards from that, I think there's a lot of opportunity. I mean, there's a lot of herds that I see that have as many heifers on feed as they do cows. 
So if they've got a 200 cow herd, they have 200 heifers on feed. Well, that sounds like my herd in Morris. We got 300 and I looked up 317 milking cows and 288 heifers. So, and that's, you know, a big question is there's always some cows that need to go and we have to call each year, right? There's various reasons, but, you know, those first 20 or 25% are pretty logical um, substitutions because we need to put a new cow in that slot because they need to leave. But as, you know, we have herds that are approaching a 40 to 50% call rate each year. And, you know, those cows really haven't paid for themselves. And it gets pretty expensive to cull a, you know, a second or third live patient cow that likely is probably making more milk than that young two-year-old that's a week fresh that's trying to replace her. So sometimes rethinking some of those norms of what should a cull rate be and let's be more proactive on setting that instead of a cull rate just being a byproduct of the number of peppers we choose to cab in a year. Yeah, I, I like to have that cull rate be an active process where it's not just a an offshoot of what else is happening on your farm. It should be a targeted, a targeted thing and a number that you target. And that gives you a way to, to figure out how many heifers you truly need and how much beef semen you really can use on your dairy. So kind of thinking back about how many cows really should leave and, and understanding, um, an ideal herd turnover really sets us up for success on trying to, to maximize the right amount of maturity and kind of that sweet spot from the lactation side. And then the question becomes, how many heifers should I freshen in? And how can I make those as valuable and, and best genetics as we can? So beef has really kind of been that relief valve, if you will, um, to prevent too many heifers growing because we know that um, you know heifer inventories are growing and there really isn't anywhere in that pipeline that we can sell excess heifers at a profit. So right. we know that they're going on our balance sheet, but they're really carrying a negative cash flow throughout their entire life cycle. So in some cases, you know, maybe raising fewer and better heifers not only improves the overall genetic value of our herd, but it also allows us to milk more three and four year old cows, which generally will, will help us from a uh, lowering the cost of production. So Trent, let, let's get to just big questions right away. What breed should I use? What we should breeds? start keeping track of that. We should I know. keep track of that. What beef right. breed? So I'm going to maybe challenge and give you a non-answer in the way that the beef breed I really think isn't the important part of this conversation. So um, we know that each breed does have its pros and cons. However, we don't use a breed. We use an individual bull. And and within that breed, we know that those uh, bulls fall you know, within a bell-shaped curve. So there's some bulls great in a trait and below. Um, and it's really trying to understand, um, you know, finding the right bulls. So homozygous cold and homozygous black would be the absolute must for a starting point. Yeah, I think I agree. I totally agree with that. The homozygous pulled, well, I agree with that piece. It has to be pulled. I'm not set on black. I really am not. Um, what I am concerned about is creating uniform group. So creating uniform group and, and providing something that the feedlot knows how to feed and, and, and can be consistent is where I kind of take issue with that. I, how, how do you do that? How do you provide a uniform product to a feedlot if you're changing the breed all the time? The industry is catching up. So there's a lot of feed yards out there that um, one and two years ago were taking these animals and, and taking whatever's there. They're coming back and saying, hey, you know, we're seeing such a variation. Um, the slang out there is dirty Holsteins. 
So there are some animals that are hitting these feed yards that, you know, have the the muscling and the length of frame and pretty much look like a, a Holstein that's all black. Others will actually compare and actually beat out purebred native Angus. And we're seeing some bulls even use on dairy cows actually grade out higher prime than um, actually native beef breeds. So that's um, very important. I think the industry is catching up and realizing that hide color is pretty superficial. Um, but going back to, to why I thought homozygous black um, is is a, a something to look into. Some of these animals that we're seeing um, out of Holstein dams are actually going through certified Angus feed. So um, these animals that we're seeing, there's a, a list of, uh, I'm not going to say all of them, but in order to be certified Angus beef, and as they go through and harvest it as such, um, you know, certainly the, the black hide color all the way through and having non-dairy characteristics are two marks of that. So we are seeing actually more animals um, that are half dairy going through that certified Angus beef chain. And that's probably one of the reasons why we are seeing a premium in the majority of the U.S. on black hided cross calves versus others, just because um, these animals are being treated and potentially still valued um, at that harvesting point because of the CAB opportunities. I, I question. So, uh, Trent, we talk about we should we're about breed. We should select from sires. Well, how do we select cows to, to beef? You know, is what's what's the magic uh, number there? Is it genetic merit? Is it production confirmation? What 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 might you be seeing from that's a great question. And that's probably one of the biggest um, opportunities, I think, that um, herds have an opportunity to really um, accelerate the genetic quality of their herd. Um, we see a lot of people choosing to use beef semen as just a reproductive strategy, where they say, after three services or just my problem cows, I'm going to introduce a beef bull as a way to get a pregnancy. Um, we're really not being you know, selective in, in determining a genetic level um, for how good the mother needs to be. So I would say more herds and what I would typically recommend um, when possible would to be, you know, to rank our herd and, and build that, whether it's um, TPI, net merit, or even creating your own index based on the genetics that you want to populate. And, and more importantly, maybe there's some genes uh, within the herd that we maybe want to minimize. But whenever we can be more strategic, and removing the bottom 20 or 30 or 40 percent of the females genetically, and we're kind of genetically calling them, um, that really allows us to focus on um, making a better animal. And from an AI side, you know, we've spent the last 50 years doing a tremendous job of using the absolute top tier of, of male genetics. So, you know, if we're not in the top one tenth of one percent for bulls born, you're not contributing to the gene pool. Yet on the dairy side, you know, pretty much every cow that comes in heat um, historically has been bred to dairy semen, and we really haven't had much selection intensity on the female side. So when you start leveraging um, beef semen from a genetic perspective, as well as maybe trying to amplify our best genetics through sex semen, that really allows us to raise the genetic average and that next generation to be even that much better. Um, however, you know, there are certainly some pros and cons, so we need to have accurate record keeping, and we need to have the opportunity and the ability to make that happen behind the cow. Because the best laid plan is great in an office, but when it comes to actually getting cows bred and making sure it happens um, out in the pen, we need to match the complexity and the precision of a plan 
to what can actually uh, be applied on a brewery. So the thing, the question that goes along with that for sure is, do you see a difference in fertility between beef and dairy semen? Yes. So I would say um, that's probably one of the more common um, misconceptions out there that beef semen is historically more fertile. Um, when we actually compare against breeds, dairy semen, um, as a general rule, tends to be a little higher fertility than beef semen. And actually, Holstein semen is the highest of, of all breeds overall. Um, and we see that when it comes to collecting beef bulls. Um, we tend to see the morphology and the post-dial motility. Um, those bulls tend to struggle a little more. And um, one of the things that ABS is focused on is actually creating um, a pipeline to create genetics specifically for dairy cows. So the beef semen that um, we're putting into the dairy herds today is actually um, being actually created specifically for the Holstein and a lot of validation um, behind the scenes. So um, we tend to see beef semen on average be a few points lower than Holstein semen. Now, there are still beef bulls that, um, you know, are on the high end of that bell-shaped curve that can be similar to a Holstein and even maybe slightly higher. But if we just use a random population of bulls, we tend to see that actually the fertility in dairy cows be a little lower. Probably specific, too, because, you know, we use some beef genetics in our herd and some bulls work great here that don't work on other farms. And I think, you know, don't put all, all your eggs in one basket with one bull. Uh, trying to figure that out. We've seen, you know, probably two to 250 bulls that we've actually sent semen out on from a progeny testing perspective, specifically into dairy cows. And once you do the modeling, you know, you see a typical bell-shaped curve distribution. So um, right now, I think we're probably culling about two-thirds to three-quarters of the bulls based on semen fertility. Oh, wow. And just trying to identify the top um, top part of that bell-shaped curve for for breeds. And, and part of it is, you know, the environment, right? I mean, Generally, that beef semen is going into a repeat service or an older cow. Um, so we're kind of already at a little bit of a disadvantage. You know, I'll see dairy comp backups, you know, oftentimes if someone isn't actively selecting for fertility as a group, maybe three to four points under. Now, when you start thinking about that, that means for every hundred breedings, we've got three or four more open cows. We know what a cost of day open is. You start multiplying the opportunity cost of days open on those repeat breedings. Sometimes, you know, saving a few dollars on semen and, and giving up fertility to do that um, can be a pretty expensive trade-off. So how would you go here? So here's my, uh, I'll give you my own uh, dilemma here. Mm -hmm. So how would you go about uh, using sex semen and beef, which is typical probably uh, in the industry? Uh, from a, from that perspective so i've you know tried to i'll give you a background on our herd we generating too many heifers you know just like every other farm uh, so we started to use beef i was breeding 30 to 40 percent beef and sex semen on the rest well this year i'm going to create way more heifers than what i did even just using conventional semen so i've used 40 percent beef and sex semen and going to have way too many heifers again so yeah, and that's one of the is the that typical is that typical or is that just my fault? Um, so it, it's kind of a momentum thing. So if we have too many heifers today, which you said you've already admitted, right? You're a heifer hoarder, Brad. <laughs> of course. That's you know, and between the the calving benefits and likely the higher genetic merit, we still want most of our heifers to come from that heifer pen, right? Yeah. So you know, under, doing some estimations and trying to model out what percent of our goal replacement rate we can get from our heifers. 
um, is a is kind of that first step because that's kind of our our top tier of heifers. And then from there, you know, we can really go in and identify the best cows based on genetic merit. I mean, there's a few farms that I am working with now that are flat out they're heifer hoarders and they have probably more heifers than they want to have on feed. And we're breeding, you know, 75 to 85 percent of the lactating herd that we've seen today. Wow, that's huge. Now we're going to be correcting that. So in you know two years time, that heifer pen is going to go from 100 heifers a month to breed to 70, and kind of get that ideal call rate dialed in. And at that point, we're going to have to reshift that amount. But um, yeah, when you think about genetic progress and opportunity, think about 80% beef and how that can really start raising the selection intensity on the female side. Um, there's some some pretty big opportunities to to really move the needle on that side. I would say that's an extreme case. Uh, however, you know, realizing that trying to, to target that and, you know, majority, there's a lot of herds out there that can get all their replacements from just their heifers, just because they have more heifers probably than they need. So, you know, back to your question, it really varies, but sitting down and, and trying to have a tool, um, most AI studs and companies out there have some sort of tool or worksheet to walk through that. Um, the one that we have, I constructed, that's an interactive app that can kind of show current modeling versus what a proposed strategy lead would be um, by rethinking that call rate. So um, reaching out with your local genetic supplier and asking how we can be a little more strategic uh, would be a great first step to get a little better parameter on maybe what percent of breedings you know, could go to each of those buckets. Uh, okay, so I have a question. Go ahead. What? You know, I know. We so often lightning strikes, Brendan. I know you got good questions. We'll see. So my question is: up to this point, all we've talked about is you know beef as a strategy to prevent or correct having too many heifers. Mm -hmm. What about or what would your strategy be for farms that are struggling to have enough heifers but still want to try the beef thing or are asking about the beef thing? What what would you say to them or what would what strategy would you propose? Yeah, so I would say in, in most herds, that's probably not a common request, but we do see that whether maybe they're they're working through some uh, management challenges, the environment or looking to grow rapidly. Um, but, you know, really understanding where the, the genetic levels are in each of those uh, ages or populations of your herd and what the overall fertility is, because we know that you know, sex semen does have a, an opportunity to um, really raise that uh, coin flip of do we get a replacement out of her or not. So we can really stack the deck in our favor, but there is a pretty good financial investment um, for that technology. So understanding, you know, what our, our ideal number of heifers is, is really that starting point. We can create that ideal herd turnover rate through, you know, 80% conventional and 20% beef. Um, more and more herds are actually asking, how can we get away from conventional? So they're either I'm all sexed and all beef. And basically we draw the line, um, based on, you know, the selection intensity based on the number of pregnancies we need to hit that. Um, and that's more animal welfare and entity processor expectations that we see in some parts of the world. Um, but really it comes back to, you know, I think is how many heifers and what's our goal and working around that. Because once we identify the right number of heifers to raise, and what the healthy call rate should be in our herd, then that really gives us the roadmap on how to get there. And I think there's a lot of different roads and paths we can take to get there. Um, it's just a matter of the amount of 
investment and precision that people deploy in their genetic plan. We're starting to see some some producers voicing concerns that people don't want to raise the heifers that come out of these these crossbred breedings. And I, I mean, personally, I think that there, if you use the, if you use quality semen, it's not something you have to worry about. But what, what can we do to make sure that those heifers actually have a place to go? Yeah. I mean, a lot comes back to, I think it's kind of like a relay race. I mean, from a dairy producer, really determining the overall quality of that animal through that lifetime, because we're selecting the genetics when we purchase and breed that cow. And we're really focused on that conception to calving side of things. Um, but once that calf is born, it's, you know, really we're handing the baton off to the, the beef supply chain. And we need to make sure that we're creating uh, the type of animal with efficiencies and carcass yield that makes sense for them. That's, you know, really profitable for it. So there is, I would say, a, you know, a little bit of a challenge on understanding that. I'll be honest, uh, most of the connections that I have and work through that, um, these, you know, steers and heifers are really becoming um, not much of a discount where they're, you know, most of these are ending up in, you know, South Central U.S. Um, from that. And there's actually some some research out there. Uh, University of Wisconsin actually tracked. Uh, it's been about three years now, but there's actually heard that I uh, work with a little bit and they track some dairy beef animals from birth to weaning and then all the way to carcass. And the heifers actually graded out. Uh, and, and we're just as competitive on the rail as your counterparts. The one thing we do see is that those animals typically take a little longer to finish. And, you know, this is just Trent's harebrained commentary and not validated. But when, when they say, hey, these are, are great quality animals, they just take longer to finish. Well, it kind of makes sense why. So, I mean, if we're thinking we got a 15-month-old heifer, how many heat cycles would you have gone through? Say three or four, three right? Three or four, yeah. yeah. Well, there's probably three or four days on every heat cycle that her feed consumption was down and she's tearing around putting on steps like crazy. So she probably had three or four days of every heat cycle that maybe her average daily gain was flat or if not even backwards. So when you think about those days that, you know, she was really uh, not behaving like a feed yard animal and was, was an estrus, that counts to about probably a month of her life that was spent um, not putting on muscle that, that the steer counterpart would be. So I'm not saying that's the reason why, um, but, you know, we do see those animals grayed out very similar all the way through. Um, however, you know, traditional mindsets um, within that beef supply chain say that the steers are, are a little quicker to finish. So they will generally put a, you know, five or 10 cent premium on those animals throughout their life cycle. Isn't isn't that balanced by feeding MGA though? I can't answer that. I'll throw it back to you. Okay. I I mean I would say that you know typically you know there's a lot of balance that goes on there as far as days on feed. For me, if you were to not feed MGA, there's potential that that heifer would need to be on feed uh, for a longer longer period to be able to finish. But she also finishes at a lighter weight, right? So a lot of times it's, it's balanced by the fact that she finishes at a lighter weight. And I think it's definitely balanced if you feed MGA. So performance, everything, average daily gain can really be balanced by, by feeding that MGA uh, to knock back those heats. So I think there is a definite place for these heifers to go. And they, they are a valuable portion of the beef supply chain. The, the other thing that we tend to forget is that, you know, with biology, what would the alternative be? 
So if that wasn't a beef cross heifer, it would have been a mediocre genetic Holstein heifer. So what does that life cycle look like? I mean, chances are we would have probably fed her, calved her in, and called her halfway through her two-year-old record because we didn't have room for it. Well, we had her on feed for, what, 30 months. She's a 1,200-pound animal that we got 50 cents for at market. Well, what's the alternative? If we would have you know, changed her, her height and her genetics um, at conception, we'd still be putting a female into that beef supply chain. We're still maybe putting roughly the same amount of meat into that market. But what's the difference? Well, we're putting her in at 15 months of age, and we're getting probably double live weight for it. So yeah. when you think about what the alternative life would be for that uh, heifer being born, um, it's still a, a big benefit. Now, they're always going to be a little behind this, this your counterpart, but we can't forget what she would have been otherwise. Yeah, and I, that's a great point because there are huge advantages or there's huge opportunity to feed heifers you know how to manage potentially some of the the additional challenges that come with feeding a heifer and, and know how to manage feeding MGA uh, to reduce those heats, you, you can have a big margin in play there. Uh, and I think that, yeah, it, I think it's time for everyone to realize that there is opportunity there and we don't have to create another situation where we end up with something that just takes the place of that, that uh, Jersey bull calf. So, so one of there's a lot of companies and, and especially in Minnesota, we, we end up pushing limousine as the breed of choice a lot of the time. What what's your take on all of that, Trent? Yeah, so I think limousine is certainly a, a hot topic and I've seen a lot of successful farms use limousine. Um, that breed is known for phenomenal uh, carcass traits and, and really in that feed yard, those limousine animals do excel. Um, and from a fertility side, I mean, the limousine uh, performance into dairy cows, I would say has been quite uh, positive. So limousine has been gaining some traction there. Uh, the one thing that we have seen and, and not saying every bull, but dairy producers, the one thing that they probably aren't as familiar with um, compared to the beef world is gestation milk. So dairy animals, and specifically Holsteins and Jerseys, generally run around 278 to 280 gestation milk. So we've been pretty blessed. We really haven't given a lot of thought to that. Semitol and Angus um, generally fall within 280 to 282, or maybe on the bad side, 285. So generally those uh, pregnancies, even in dairy cows, will uh, be a couple days longer. And limousine, um, you know, if you flip the back of uh, an AI calendar, you'll see that limousine is one of the longer gestation lengths. And when you start thinking, okay, that's, you know, an extra seven to 10 days. Well, how does that impact the dairy operation? Well, unless we're adjusting dry off dates, you know, we're adding 10% more days in the dry period. So, you know, all of a sudden, instead of that cow being seven days in milk, she's just laying down to have a calf now. And when you start thinking about the most expensive area on a dairy, whether it's feed and labor and different things, that dry cow pen and close up tends to be a pretty bottleneck area. And, you know, when we do see some animals, you know, consistently being seven, eight, nine, ten days longer gestation length than what they're used to, that can cause some, some opportunities to, to really um, tighten that up. So not saying, you know, that's a common thing within the breed. But at least in um, dairy comp backups and at least individual bulls, 
We do see gestation lengths run long um, on all breeds, but limousine can be more common. So that would just be one thing that I've seen that has become um, a bottleneck issue for dairy producers that never really realize because they get so focused on calving ease and semen fertility, um, but they don't realize that once we're into this new era of different breeds, um, gestation lengths can throw, uh, throw you for a curveball if you're not used to it. Now, my question has always been, what if there's been arguments about calving ease, right? So like mm -hmm. calving ease, was it actually the confirmation of the calf? Was it birth weight? What, what all played into that? But some of that we thought we started to think was actually due to a shorter gestation length. So you still see this true for truly really high calving ease bulls. Do you still see that run true? Yeah. So the first thing I would say is that, you know, just looking at, um, you know, we've from an ABS side, we've been working on this for a few years and have not a ton of data, but I would say three to 400 bulls worth of observations on dairy cows. And probably one of the surprising things is actually the correlations between BPPDs and performance in the dairy herd is a lot lower than you think. I mean, we'll see some Angus bulls in the top 10 or 20 percent for, say, calving difficulty for EPD actually become quite poor and below average on that. So translating EPDs to expecting that same superiority um, on dairy cows isn't a given. So, you know, we're actually seeing some beef bulls actually have less calving dystocia challenges into the dairy herd than maybe what their EPD shows. So that, that really puts a handcuff on farmers as far as, well, how do they choose then? Yeah. If they can't um, use EPDs, what, what, what can they do? I would say it gives us a good direction, but it's not um, identical on that. So it, directionally, I think, you know, finding those those best EPDs are a good starting point. Um, but there's a lot of opportunity to be had. And, and that was one of the reasons, you know, seeing the the growth, not only from a global perspective, the U.S. is why, you know, ABS has been really trying to not only select um, and create bulls specifically for dairy cows, but collecting that information and actually doing genetic evaluations um, like they are a dairy bull. So let's look at gestation length. Let's look at semen fertility. Let's look at calving ease on Holsteins and account for parity, season, time, year effect, all that, and actually trying to get the same data um, and accuracy that producers have had um, at their fingertips. I mean, when you think about what's the accuracy and reliability that beef producers are used to having when it comes to selecting genetics and the avenues for collecting data compared to the Holstein Avenue, you know, I don't think the dairy industry realizes how good we've had it as far as getting large amounts of accurate data when you start talking to beef producers and how they get those EPDs and how difficult it is to um, get a lot of that information and just making sure that we're using all those tips at our disposal. I think we covered most of what we had on the schedule today to cover, and I think we'll wrap it there. Uh, if you need something to reference, uh, go to extension.umn.edu for more information. Thank you for listening, everybody, today, and we'll catch you next episode. Quick set of housekeeping things on the end of this episode, guys. Thank you again to Trent Olson for being on. We really appreciate your time, and we really appreciate all the good answers you had for us today, and I, I truly did learn a lot. Please head to absglobal.com. Great website, lots of good information. They even have a great tool to find out who your rep is at the company. Just got to type in your zip code, and it'll point you directly to who you need to talk to. That's all I got. We'll catch you next week.
depends on the day whether it's you know hey brad you're ruining it like let's go